The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, we each, one of us, walked into this place this morning in desperate need of mercy. Mercy and grace and forgiveness. There's not a one of us that walked into this place this morning thinking, I surely hope God will give us what we deserve. And so we praise you this morning, Father, that your mercy is more. More than our sin, more than the power of darkness, more than our doubts, more than even our denials of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that your mercy is more. We come to this place this morning praising you that our salvation was not ours to win and therefore it was not ours to lose. We thank you, Father, that you have welcomed these songs that we sing, that you would allow us as an unclean people to come into your presence being washed by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and therefore you would welcome our praise, that you would hear our prayers, that you would allow us to hear and see and understand your word and be changed. Father God, we're not playing this morning. This isn't an act. This isn't a timeout from the real world. This is the realest of worlds. Everything out there will pass away. Everything out there will burn up. But you, but you alone, who we are in you, all that we hope for in you, an eternity in your presence. That's the only thing. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to stay focused on that. Keep the enemy at bay in these moments. Still our mind and calm our hearts. Help us to feel your presence in these moments. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So churches, we prepare our hearts for what is going to very very likely be a little over two months, walking verse by verse through these final few chapters of Mark's gospel. Everything that we have come to call Good Friday, we might do well to remember that for those first century disciples, they did not yet fully realize the victory that Easter Sunday would bring. Now they had the prophecies of Christ regarding his death and resurrection. They knew that he would be returning to the right hand of the Father and that there he would be ruling forever. They believed his promises that he would not leave them alone. In fact, that he would come to them in spirit today, but personally and physically in the last day of the last days. They had heard all of this. They had committed to build their lives on this hope. But as it all unfolded, as the events of this night unfolded before their eyes, and that day actually came, it would stretch their hope and their faith and their courage to its very limits. Again, I say Jesus had done a good job of preparing his friends for this night. He had made clear to his followers that everything was going exactly as planned, that all of this must happen, and yet that at every single moment he had not lost control, that there was not one spot of dust, There was not one spark of fire. Not even the evil hearts of these sinful men was operating outside of the sovereign decree of God. That all of this was happening exactly as he has prepared them. And yet, 
when the thing that you fear is right here, when the thing that you've been preparing for is right here, when the threat and the suffering and the pain and the persecution isn't off there in the distance somewhere, when it comes marching right up to your doorstep, it will cause you to doubt things that you absolutely know are true. It will cause you to fear things that you know simply cannot hurt you. And it will cause you to say and do things that you swore you would never do. Perhaps nowhere is this truth more clearly displayed than in this morning's text. This is a passage that's very familiar to most of you, I would imagine. It's Peter's three-stage denial of Christ. Peter, the rock, the leader amongst the apostles, an integral part of the foundation on which the church would be built. The brash, the boastful, the brave one amongst all his friends. He would fall and he would fall hard. Now it wouldn't feel like it in this moment. But dear friends, what we're about to witness is the making of a true spiritual leader. It's going to sting. Nobody would have signed up for this. But what we're about to watch is something truly beautiful. The necessary path through which Jesus Christ must lead this man that he loves so that he might be useful to the kingdom of God. So Jesus has just been arrested and he was led away to stand trial before the, the, the religious leaders. It would be there that he was lied about, he was mocked, he was accused, he was spit upon, he was slapped, and he was beaten with their fists. Throughout it all, Jesus would remain silent, making no defense, offering no resistance, Jesus was fully committed to carrying out the will of his father. In the words of Isaiah 50, he had set his face like flint towards the cross and nothing was going to deter him. He would face these trials knowing that he was going to die for sinners, knowing that he was going to die for sinful men, even those that denied him, that he might win a people to himself. And he was going to face this trial, never uttering a word except for to affirm his identity except for to confess that he is the Christ, the son of the most high God, and that even these men standing there on that night mocking him, that they too would know that he had returned to the right hand of his father and that there he reigns in power and glory. Now Jesus knew what this confession would cost him. He knew the price that he was going to pay for these words that he uttered because he knew that this entire trial was a farce. The Sanhedrin had, had determined three years ago that Jesus must be destroyed. You see, they already passed the sentence. The sentence is death. They had already determined that he was guilty. Now they just had to determine, what are we going to charge him with? And Jesus seemed to be playing right into their hands. Now they didn't have any credible witnesses. Even, even the lying witnesses, they couldn't get their testimony to agree. And yet, here's Jesus confessing it. Seeing as though he was playing right into their hands. And so the leaders, they looked to one another and they said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned Jesus as deserving of death. These men were so blinded by sin. Their religious hearts were so hardened by pride that they simply could not and would not see. In the words of Paul, the God of this world had blinded the minds of the unbelievers and kept them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Son of God stood before their eyes and they were so blinded that they sought to destroy him. Now you'll likely recall that Jesus was going to face two trials, one political and one religious, and that each of these two trials would come in three phases. Now we studied the first two phases of the religious trial last week and 
and typical Markian style, he inserts just a, just a statement in the middle there about Peter, about where he is while all this is going on, setting up the text that we come to this morning. We read back in Mark 14, 54, and Peter had followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priests, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself there by the fire. So as Jesus is up, meeting with the high priest and his minions, Peter had followed at a distance. He's entered into the courtyard, and there he's trying to stay warm beside the temple guards there at the fire. Now back in the 50th verse of this chapter, we read that once Jesus was bound and carried away, that all of his disciples fled. They all ran away from him. But for some reason, Peter kept following. I have to imagine that Peter didn't know what else to do. For three years, his whole life had been bound up in Christ. Who are you, Peter? I'm a follower of him. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. He had seen, he had tasted, and he knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew that with him came the kingdom of God. And so I imagine that on that night as Jesus led away, Peter looked around and said, to whom else shall I go? Who am I if I'm not with Christ? But following Jesus too closely, that was dangerous. Peter knew what the cost of following Jesus, of being associated with Jesus on this night would be. And so we read that he followed Jesus at a distance. Neighbor, do you follow the Lord just closely enough to still feel like you're with him? Do you walk just close enough to Jesus Christ to convince yourself that you really are a disciple, but not so close that you would ever have to actually suffer with him? If you set your pacing back of him just, just far enough so that you can, you can claim that you are his, and yet in a position where you're able to blend in with the crowd so much that when they turn on him, they won't turn on you too. Dear friends, you follow Jesus at a distance. If so, be warned. Because you yourself will find that you deny Jesus sooner or later. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence, a reading of God's word. We return to uh, 14th chapter of Mark's gospel. We begin in verse 66. This is the word of God. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And a servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe this word that we have just read. We ask these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So verse 66 began like this. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now there's something that we haven't yet addressed just yet. Luke told us that all of this, the second stage of Jesus' religious trial, Peter warming himself in the fire in the courtyard, that all of this was happening at the house of the current high priest, a man called Caiaphas. 
Caiaphas, who was also the son-in-law of a previous high priest, a man called Annas. Now, in that part of the world, in those days, it would not have been uncommon for both Caiaphas and Annas' family to live together on one property, to share this house together. Now, we read that first Jesus was carried away to the house of Annas. Perhaps this is the same house. Perhaps he just went to the portion of the, pro- portion of the property where Annas lived, and there he faced that first portion of the religious trial that we read in John chapter 18. We then read that he was carried away to the quarters of Caiaphas. Again, perhaps this was the same house. Maybe it wasn't. But what we do know for sure is that in the middle of this property, there was a courtyard. Now, you might picture a four-sided structure, and in the middle, there's an open-air, outside section where people could hang out. You think about maybe a quad in the center of a college campus. Then in the middle of this place, because Jerusalem was at 2,500 feet elevation, it gets cold whenever the sun goes down, they would have created a fire for the people to stay warm. So we read that that Peter, excuse me, entered into this courtyard. He sat down and sought to warm himself by the fire. But how? How did Peter gain access to the high priest's courtyard? Yes, this was an outside area, but this was still his property. Think about it. You don't allow just anybody to hang out in your backyard, do you? Especially not if you're someone as important as the high priest. And especially not in a time that's so emotionally charged, such a critical and emotionally charged time as this night. You don't allow just anyone to hang around on your property. And so how? How did Peter gain access to the high court, to the court of the high priest? Well, thankfully, John, the Apostle John, tells us a little bit about this in his, uh, his gospel. We're reading John chapter 18, beginning at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. This is new information to us, isn't it? Peter wasn't following Jesus alone, apparently. Apparently, there was at least one other disciple that was there with him. Now, John doesn't tell us who this man is, but do you want to guess who he is? Do you want to guess who this man is that John refers to as another disciple? Seems like it must be John himself, doesn't it? We know that all throughout John's gospel, he would not refer to himself by name. Instead, he would often refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. If we fast forward just a bit to John chapter 20, what we find is that after Mary Magdalene goes and finds the stone rolled away from Jesus' tomb, she runs back to tell Peter, and then we read that Simon Peter and the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, they were running to the tomb together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It makes me laugh every time I read it. probably makes you laugh every time you read it because John's bragging. He said, I want to make sure you know that I won the foot race. Peter and I were running to the tomb of Jesus Christ, and I got there first, and I'm going to tell everybody 2,000 years from now, Peter. But it seems clear, doesn't it? It seems clear that John was talking about himself as the one that was there at the tomb with Peter, and it seems clear that John was the one that was here in the courtyard on that night. Now, we read that this other disciple... John refers to him, that he was known by the high priest. Now, most commentators, they believe that maybe this was because John and his family, they had a successful fishing business. Then, just like today, big business gains you access to important people. So what we read is that John shows up there, and he's allowed access because he was known by the high priest. Verse 16 of John chapter 18. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, he went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And brought Peter in. This is a very easy passage to understand, isn't it? John is known, so John comes in. He goes to this servant girl and he says, this guy's with me. He's cool. I know him. He's with me. I vouch for him. And so she goes and allows Peter to come in based on the word of John. Now, knowing this, 
the words of what this servant girl says to Peter in Mark's gospel make a little bit more sense. Because what we read is that the servant girl looks up to, John, uh, to Peter and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. You also. Seems that she's referring to John, to this other disciple. It makes sense that this other man was known by the high priest and was known by his servants. It makes sense that they would have known that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And now she's saying, surely this man was also with the Nazarene, with Jesus. Now Luke tells us that the girl was examining Peter's face. As he sat by this fire, there was light coming off of this fire, and it's a, the girl looked closely at him. Adonizo is the word in Greek. It means to stare, to, to study something very intently. And so you can, you can just picture this girl just, just looking, just looking and examining Peter's face, and then she says, surely he was one of them. Surely this man also was with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, Nazarene is not a term of endearment. To the religious and political and social elite, in the south, in Judea, particularly around Jerusalem, to be from Nazareth was not a thing to be lauded. You'll remember that Nathaniel said to Philip when he met Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so this woman wasn't praising this man for having been a Nazarene or having been with the Nazarene. He viewed, she viewed Peter and John perhaps as nothing more than an uncultured outsider, just like Jesus. But I do want you to notice something. Before we get to Peter's response, I want you to notice that this girl wasn't asking a question. She was simply making an observation. You were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, it wasn't a positive uh, observation. This wasn't a praiseful affirmation, observation, but she looks at him and she says, surely you were with Jesus the Nazarene. It's simply an observation, and it did not necessarily require a response. Even if it did require a response, could Peter have not just responded, well, yes, yes, ma'am, I am. That may well have been the end of this entire encounter. Because again, Peter was not the only disciple of Jesus Christ that was in the courtyard on that night. There was another disciple that had gone and vouched for him. In addition to this, there wasn't yet an accusation being made against Peter. In addition to this, you'll remember that Jesus on no less than two occasions forced the men that came out to arrest him to confirm that he was the one they had the warrant for. Jesus had gone to great lengths to protect Peter and the others. And yet driven by fear, Peter would not give an honest response. The honest, the straightforward, the easy response would have been a simple nod of the head and an affirmation that, yes, just like this other man, I am with Jesus. But instead, we read in verse 68, Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Church, have you ever lied about something and then just sat there thinking, why didn't I just tell the truth? What was even the point in telling that lie? Now, this isn't the main thrust of this morning's text but I would be foolish to allow this opportunity for exhortation to pass us by Christian you must know that God is not the author of lies he is the very definition of truth he is the source and the standard and the judge and the revelation of all that is true and you simply need to do a survey of the holy scriptures to find that he absolutely abhors dishonesty Proverbs 6, verse 16, down through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that, that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Dear friends, God hates lying tongues. 
He hates those that breathe out lies. And in a very similar vein, those who use those lies to sow discord among the brothers. Psalm 101.7, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Jesus warns us that when we lie, we speak the language of the devil. John 8.44, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. I could go on, but you get the picture. God is true. As we read in Numbers 23, there isn't even the slightest hint of dishonesty in him. And yet Satan is a liar. He knows nothing but dishonesty and lies. And therefore, as we stand here today, we look at these two options and we recognize that for the one that claims to follow Jesus Christ, for the one that claims to walk in the light, for the one who calls himself a Christian, there is no place whatsoever for lies, for dishonesty. And I need you to hear me very, very clearly because I truly believe that this is the sneakiest and perhaps the most pervasive sin in the lives of believers. The church does itself and those that we love no favors whatsoever by ignoring or dealing lightly with this sin. When we find our brother or our sister or ourselves caught in this, we must identify it by its biblical name, lying. We don't soft pedal it. We don't pretend as if we did not understand it. To say something that you know is not true is a lie. And to tell a lie about a brother and sister in Christ is especially despicable. And the real danger of lying, amongst all the other sins, the great danger in lying is that by its nature, it is hidden and deceitful and you believe private. And almost always, it comes in tandem. It is the partner of all of our other sins. Lies beget lies. Liars only become better liars. And lying is the fool's gold. Lying is like that stupid invisibility cloak that you bought in the back of a comic book. You believe that you can hide behind it. You believe that you can stand there unseen and all your filth behind a cloak of lies and men see right through it. But if we're not careful... If we're not careful, we can find ourselves saying things that are not true without any internal struggle, without any pause, without any hiccup, without any hesitation in our spirit. If we're not careful, lying can become our native tongue. We can become just like Satan in that realm. Dear children, if this is you, repent. Beg God to change your heart. You must know this, that the root The true source of all lies is almost always a heart that is captured by fear and pride. It's driven by men that are afraid of what telling the truth will cost them. Driven by fear of what telling the truth will cause you to think about them. And so unless we attack the root, unless we attack the source, unless we get to the core of what causes us to lie, there will never be any change. It's only when we allow ourselves to speak the truth and face the consequences, whatever they are, no longer wondering about what it's going to cost us. No, no, no longer worrying about what you're going to think of me if I tell you the truth. That is where we win. That is where the battle lies. The battle is in the heart. Yes, we fight to speak the truth at all times. Yes, we fight to say the truth in love no matter the cost. But ultimately, if our heart is not changed, if God does not bring us to a point where we are no longer filled with fear of man, we will always find ourselves falling into this, this sin of lying. And clearly, that's what gripped Peter on this night. Clearly, it was fear that drove Peter to lie. But again, why? He was speaking to a servant girl. 
This was a girl. At this point, she hadn't made any accusation. Yes, I understand the setting. Yes, I understand the context. And yet, at this moment, there was no harm that this little girl could do to Peter at this moment. There was no threat that was being dangled over him. Add to this the fact that just moments earlier, Peter had been swinging his sword at a grown manservant. This other servant of the high priest that had come out to arrest Jesus, he was more than happy to swing his sword and to try to take off that man's hand, or excuse me, head. To physically attack the servant of the high priest, this was like attacking the high priest himself. And yet standing there on that Mount of Olives, we find that Peter was filled with all kinds of courage. And yet then when Jesus commanded him to put down his sword, when Jesus himself was led away, when Peter recognized that Jesus really meant what he said when he talked about laying down his life, all of a sudden fear sunk in. And Peter finds himself telling a lie. He finds himself denying Jesus Christ and telling a lie at the simple comment of a servant girl. Now to be more precise, he just played dumb. I neither know nor understand what you mean. Peter was acting like he didn't understand the question. I, I don't even know who this guy is. I don't, I don't know whether I know him or not. I don't even understand the question that you're asking me. We read then that Peter went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Now, I've always believed that whenever that first rooster crowed, that almost immediately Peter's mind would have gone back to the prediction that Jesus had made. That almost immediately when he heard that rooster crowed, he would have thought back to the words that Jesus had told him when he said, truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. In my mind, surely that should have come flooding into Peter's ears the minute that rooster crowed. But as I sat this week and really meditated, as I tried to put myself in Peter's shoes and really imagine what it would have been like on this night, I have to imagine that his heart was pounding way too loudly, that his mind was running way too fast for him to think about anything other than fear. In fact, I have to imagine that any promises, any words that Jesus had made before this moment, they were absolutely clouded by the fear of what would happen if he told the truth. Think about it. When was the last time that you were in a fist fight? I pray it was a long, long time ago. But your adrenaline goes through the roof and it takes a long, long time to come back down. Now replace a fist fight with a sword fight. And assume that your savior, your Lord, the one that you call master has been led away in chains and you know that he is now in the hands of those that seek to take his life. In that moment, Jesus' predictions were the furthest thing from Peter's mind. And yet he knew that he had to he had to get away. The apostle knew that he had to get out of there because perhaps some other people standing around the fire, they had heard the words of this girl. Perhaps they were going to catch on that he was, in fact, a Galilean, that he had, in fact, been with Jesus of Nazareth. And so we read that he moves away and moves to the gateway or the forecourt, trying to distance himself from the group. Verse 69, and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Now, perhaps Peter's denial piqued the girl's interest. Why is he so adamant about not being with the dude that let him in? Why is he so adamant about not being associated with this Jesus fellow? So now she gets the crowd involved. She said, this man is from Galilee. This man, just like the other man, he is also with Jesus, the Nazarene. Verse 70, but again, Peter denied it. Now the Greek word for denied here is arneomai. Do you remember that word? We came to it back in chapter eight. It means to disown or to repudiate. Peter was trying to completely separate himself from Christ. He wanted nothing to do with him. Again, back in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, we read Jesus talking about what it would take to be a disciple, what it will take to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, if anyone wants to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, he must renounce. 
He must disown. He must deny himself. He must completely separate himself from that one that once ruled his life. From that old man that once had absolute control, that man must be repudiated. But instead, Peter denies Christ. Peter says, I do not know that man and I want nothing to do with him. Now the verb denied here is presented in the imperfect tense. It means it's an ongoing action. This wasn't just a simple brushing off. Over and over and over again, Peter protested. He insisted. He denied. I don't know that man. And you have to imagine the more that he denied, the more frantic he got. The more he felt the eyes of the crowd looking upon him. But he said, I don't know that man. He would not even utter the name of Christ. He wouldn't even say the name of the one that he called Lord. He couldn't even make his name come out of his mouth. He simply referred to him as that man. I don't know that man. In fact, we read in Matthew's gospel that he swore an oath. You remember that when Jesus was before the high priest, he looked at Jesus and he said, I adjure you by God. Tell me if you are the Christ. He put Jesus under oath. And Jesus with great boldness looked to him and said, I am. Peter puts himself under an oath. And he swears, I don't even know that man. Do you see the progression? From an observation by a servant girl to the questioning of the crowd, Peter goes from playing dumb and acting like he didn't understand the question to putting himself under oath in an effort to separate himself from Christ. And after a little while, the bystanders said again to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. How did they know? Did the people from the north, did the people from Galilee, did they call them Yankees? I wonder that. Did you call the people from Galilee a Yankee? Did the Yankees look different from the southerners? Like what, what was it about Peter and about his friends that made it so clear that he was in fact a Galilean, that he wasn't from Judea? Was it simply a look in their face? Possibly, probably, maybe. But we also read in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, 73, we read this. After a little while, the bystanders, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. He was a Yankee. Your accent gives you away. Maybe all that protestation wasn't such a good idea. Maybe all those words of denial weren't such a good idea. The more Peter denied, the more he exclaimed, the more he swore an oath, the more he denied knowing Jesus Christ, the more certain the crowd became, he's one too. He is truly one of them. His accent gives him away. He is from Galilee. Now, John tells us that another servant of the high priest, he was a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off. This servant asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? This thing's turning into a nightmare. Now you've got an eyewitness. You go from this servant girl that just wonders, perhaps, surely, you look like a Galilean. You're with this other guy that's a Galilean. Surely you're with Jesus, the Nazarene. Then you get the crowd hearing the man's accent and going, oh, that's unmistakable. You truly are from Galilee. And now you have a direct eyewitness a relative of Malchus. Apparently this man had gone with the crowd as they went out to arrest Jesus. And I just have to imagine, you don't forget the face of a man that lops off your cousin's ear. They recognized Peter. So surely Peter felt the noose getting tighter and tighter by the moment. It was like quickstand. The more he fought, the more he resisted, the more he struggled, the deeper he went. And the more obvious it became to the crowd that he was lying. Verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now when we hear someone swearing or invoking a curse, 
many of us probably, we, we think of foul language. Like we imagine Peter uttering expletives to demand that the people just stop saying that, you so-and-so. He, he was trying to intimidate them and he was, he, was, he was using curses, what we call today foul language, expletives to try and turn the conversation, to try and intimidate these people that were witnessing against him. But that's not really what's happening here. When we read that Peter invoked a curse, it means that he was telling these people, I, I assure you, I promise you, I commit to you that I do not know this man. And if I'm lying, may God bring a curse upon my head. We also read that Peter swore. Now, no good Jewish man would ever swear by the name of God. And so he probably swore by heaven or something like that. And so he's looking at these people and he's saying, I swear to you by the throne of heaven, I don't know this man. And may a curse come down upon me if I'm lying. Dear friends, don't, cur- don't gloss over this. This is really, really big stuff. This is serious business. The idea of blessings and curses, they run all throughout the scripture. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God warned the man, if you reach out your hand and take from the tree that is forbidden, you shall be cursed. For surely on that day you will die. We know that the man rebelled. We know that with him all mankind was thrown down into this rebellion, into sin, into guilt, and a curse came upon the earth. All the things, coincidentally, that Jesus came to make clear that he had the power to overturn. As we see Jesus casting out demons, as we see him healing the sick, as we see him raising the dead, as we see him calming the storm, as we see him walking on water, Jesus was making clear that I am who I said I am. He was giving assurance to his identity. He was giving affirmation to his gospel. He was making clear that he and he alone had the power and the authority to undo, to reverse, to set right everything that came as a result of the fall as a result of the curse. And now we find Peter, the leader amongst the apostles, this one that had been walking with him for three years and had seen all of this, this one that had been called by his name, this one that had been used of him to go out in power to cast out demons and to heal the sick, and you find him swearing upon himself a curse, the very same kind of curse that Jesus came to destroy, the same kind of curse that Jesus would take upon himself as he went to the cross. You have to imagine if Jesus heard those words in this moment, he said, I'll pay for that one too. This man sought to bring a curse down upon himself. He was so desperate to separate himself, to distance himself from Jesus Christ. And church, it was completely needless. It was completely needless. He had all the promises of Jesus Christ. He had seen the power of just his name as he said, I am, and everyone fell down. Everything was going exactly as Jesus had said it was. No one forced Peter's hand here. It was a servant girl. It was a crowd. He could have simply kept his mouth shut or nodded his head or said, yes, truly I am with him, but he wouldn't do it. So we find him here not only lying, not only bringing a curse upon himself for disobeying and dishonoring and breaking the law of God, but in repudiating his son, bringing a curse down upon himself, uttering, may I be cursed if I am not telling the truth in an effort to give credibility to his lies. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, Peter's head may have been spinning the first time the rooster crowed. He may not have been able to think about Jesus' words in the beginning, but the second time he knew. Now, Luke tells us that there was about an hour between the second denial and the third. This whole event, it it took something like two hours, as best I can tell. This wasn't three quick back-to-back denial, denial, denial. He had some time to compose himself. He had some time to recollect himself and think about what he was really doing in these moments. 
But yet again, the authoritative word of Christ has proven to be true. Peter swore it would never happen. Peter absolutely swore, if I must die with you, Jesus, I will not abandon. I will not deny you. And yet, just as Jesus has foretold, here he is. Now, Luke tells us that something else truly gut-wrenching happened when that second rooster crowed. Luke told us that with that third denial, with that second rooster crowing, that at that very moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, it seems like maybe he's being led away from Caiaphas and they're taking him out to wherever the rest of the Sanhedrin, the whole group is going to gather for this final trial, this final religious trial in the daylight. But whatever the case, perhaps Jesus is being led through the courtyard. And in that moment, as Peter utters that final denial and that rooster crows, the Lord turns and he looks him in the face. Now, already by this point, we have to imagine that Jesus' face is somewhat disfigured and bruised and swollen. I have to imagine it was through puffy eyes and streams of blood that the Lord looked up and he made eye contact with his apostle. He made eye contact with his dear friend at the very moment that his betrayal became complete, that his absolute denial, that his repudiation, that his insistence that he knew nothing and wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ, that at that moment his Lord looked him in his eyes. Can you imagine the shame? Jesus had told his disciples not long before this, back in Mark 8, 38, he said, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his father and his holy angels. It was over. Peter blew it. Now church, you have to know that Peter's failure began long before these pre-dawn moments. Peter's life was one that was clearly marked with pride. He had showed that he above, he had promised that he above all the rest of the apostles, that even if they all run away, even if they all deny you, even if they all scatter like cowards, I will not. I will remain with you until the very end. And dear friends, I know that none of you would be so bold as to speak like this, but you've got to know this is a different time. This is a different time when men spoke in a different way. It's quaint, isn't it? Today we would call it uncouth. But men who are bold enough at least to say the truth, to say what they really thought in their prideful hearts, But I assure you, while I don't use these words, I find this very same spirit of haughtiness in my heart. I find within me the same kind of subtle yet despicable spiritual pride. It masks itself in false humility. It hides behind acts of Christian service. It occasionally pops up in my deep desire to be praised by you. Scripture tells us that pride comes before the fall. And you need to know that for those of us who have been used by God, the more of his goodness we experience, the more he overcomes our frailty to display his glory, the greater chance there is for pride and the harder we fall. Peter's issue was his pride. And Jesus had warned him. Just hours earlier, he had pled with his friend. He had said, you must stay awake Pray that you might not fall into temptation, but he wouldn't. He couldn't stay awake for even one hour and pray. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because Peter did not understand the war that they were in the middle of. He didn't recognize it. Now, he understood a soldier that came marching at him, a soldier coming out with a sword or a club and a lantern and a torch. He recognized that's an enemy. That's an opponent. That's a war that I know how to fight. What he didn't recognize in these moments was that he was smack dab in the middle of a spiritual war for his soul. Dear friends, do you understand 
Please tell me you understand because the war is not over. The war is not over. This is war. Right now, at every moment, in every place, in every time, there's a war going on for your soul. The enemy continues to prowl around, seeking one of us to devour, working hard to convince you that all is quiet on the Western Front. Everything's okay. Why don't you get comfortable and take off your armor? Why don't you get comfortable and put down that heavy sword? Why don't you get comfortable and enjoy all the good things that I lay out before you? And then he pounces. He attacks. He tempts. He sifts. He does everything that he can to separate us from the love of Christ. Christian, this is war. War is meant to put you on edge. War is meant to cause you to stay alert. War is meant to cause you to stay awake and on guard. I pray you understand I'm not being melodramatic. I'm not over-exaggerating here. You must understand what's at stake here. A whole lot more than if the Chinese Communist Army comes marching through Crosby, Texas. They can take your life. They can take your wife and your children and your freedom. But dear friends, they cannot touch your soul. But this war that we talk about, this war that Peter didn't even understand he was in the middle of in this moment, this war is for keeps. This one wanted to do everything he can. This enemy who does not sleep wanted to do everything he could to lead or keep you in opposition to God. There's nothing that he wants more than for you to die nice and fat and happy and satisfied in your sin and face the eternal wrath of God in a place where the fire is never quenched and the worm does not die. That is his desire. This is war, and he is playing for keeps. But here's the problem. We can't fight this war like any other war. What did Jesus tell Peter? He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, this isn't peacetime. This is wartime. Get your guard up. Get your sword in your hand. You must be prepared. It is by violence that we will take the kingdom of God. But you must understand that you cannot fight this battle in the flesh. You cannot fight it the way that you fight every other battle. Those who live in the, live in the flesh, those who continue to walk in the flesh, those who fight in the flesh, you will find that the flesh is no help at all. Church, you must understand this, that we walk, we talk, we live, we fight, we survive according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. Okay, fine. What does that mean, though? We have to do the preacher talk. Walk by spirit, not the flesh. Go in peace. What does that mean? What does it look like? Number one, it means we identify our enemies. You understand, dear friends, that your enemies are not in this room. Your enemies are not in your home. Your enemies aren't even out there in the world. You understand, according to the words of Paul, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The enemy wants us fighting out here. The enemy wants us busy battling against fleshly things. He wants us busy fighting each other over the things that are all going to burn up in the end while he laughs all the way to the bank. He wants you to do anything you can to stay down here with these earthly quarrels, with these fleshly fights, with these temporal wars, making sure that you never enter into the spiritual battle for your soul. Because as long as we're focused there, he wins. Number two, you must know what the vic- how the victory comes and what victory looks like. Fighting according to the Spirit, it doesn't just mean knowing who your enemy is. It means recognizing that the victory is only won in Jesus Christ. Dear friends, I hate to break it to you, you're not gonna be the hero in your story. Your strength, your power, Your ability, they're not going to come swooping in to save the day. Your only hope is to look to Christus Victor, Jesus Christ, your victor, your champion, the one who has truly overcome. He has put them all to death, that he took all of your failures, that all of your enemies, and all of your loss, that he took it all to the cross with him, and he put it to death, 
that now in his patience, as he waits for the last of the saints to come in, he continues to allow the enemy to prowl. He continues to allow the flesh to attack. But you must know that the victory has been won. And it's the only means of victory that we have today is to look to the face of this one that looks at us. As he welcomes us, as he invites us, as he says, join yourself to me. You can't fight because you're a weakling. You can't fight because you're a coward. You can't fight because you don't have the right weapons. But if you come to me, if you're joined to me, then my victory becomes your victory. When I raise from the grave and I declare that it is finished, you will know that this is true. You will know that I've truly finished. I've truly destroyed. I've utterly won the war. And I've won it for you. And you too will be joined with me in this victory. But you must know that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Do you know how many professing Christians have died, have been lost and died because they tried to live this life in the flesh? They tried to please God. They tried to impress God. They tried to build churches in the flesh. And it won't work because I've tried. So again, our only hope is to be joined to him. Our only hope is submission. Whoever won a war like that, waving a white flag of surrender, and yet that's exactly what must happen. You wave the white flag and you say, I give up. The more I try, the deeper I go. The more I fight, the worse it gets. So I give up. I wave the white flag and I surrender to you, Jesus Christ, my king, my victor, my champion. And he promises that he will not turn a heart like that away. He promises that his victory will be yours. And he promises he's then going to work through you. Does this mean that we sit back and do nothing? No, because what he says is that you will work out this salvation with fear and trembling, and yet it is him who wills and works. He says, I will give you a passion for the fight. I'll give you a desire for the fight. I will equip you for the fight, and then I will take up your puny hand and show you how to swing that sword. He says, I will do it all because I win. I will not lose one of those that are mine. I promised my father that I will not lose one of those that are mine. You are my sheep and I lay down my life. You will not be snatched from my hand and I will give you and sustain you and hold you to the very end. Do you understand the promise that he's making here? This is what it looks like. This is how we can rest in the middle of war. It's not inactivity. It's not letting our guard down, but we can find peace and joy and rest in the middle of the war because we're watching a rerun and we already know how it ends. That's the promise that he makes for us. In addition to this, we must know that the battle continues to rage on. That the flesh will always be there. It's not going anywhere. That day after day after day, there will be these little bastions, these little pockets of resistance and rebellion that continue to pop up, and we must put them down. We don't give them quarter. We don't give them a foothold. We don't give them one ounce of space. Any of the sin, any of the flesh, any of the enemy that pops up in our life, we absolutely decimate it. But we must recognize that this battle will not be complete until our final day, that we will constantly, although the victory is won, we will be in constant battle against the flesh. That's what the apostle Paul said to the Roman church. He said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. If this is true of St. Paul, how much more true is it of us? That there will always be this flesh popping up, that we will constantly be at war against the enemies even of our own soul, even within ourselves, even within our flesh. They will constantly be there. So, dear friends, I invite you this morning, if you come into this place and you feel yourself, you feel that battle, you cry out with Paul and you say, I can't do the things I want to do and I do the things that I hate doing. Dear friends, that's a good sign. That's a good sign that you haven't laid down and died. That's a good sign that you know that you're in a battle. That's a good sign that you haven't felt yourself comfortable in the accommodations of the enemy. If you sit here and you listen to the words that I'm speaking, if you hear the story of Peter, you hear the confession of Paul and you say, I can't relate to that at all. Dear friends, be very, very careful you may well have just settled into defeat. You may well have just given up the war. 
You may well just be too happy with the gifts that the flesh offers you that you have no thoughts of the eternal things. But for the rest of us, for those who are engaged in this battle, we know, we know that the enemy is there. We know that the flesh pops up. We know our own weakness. And so again, we work it out with fear and trembling. We don't keep the score the way that the world keeps score. We know that we're gonna continually fail. We know that we're gonna stumble. We know that we're gonna fall. We don't keep score the way the rest of the world keeps score. We look to Jesus Christ, our King, and we say, whatever you call us to do, that we shall do. We trust that you are the only path to victory, that you are the only victor, that you are the only way to eternal life, and then we walk in that, absolute trust in that. Church, it seems clear to me that Peter either refused to or failed to understand that he was in the middle of a spiritual war, and so he fell. He sinned. He denied his only hope. He denied the one that was laying down his life even in that moment at the very pinnacle of his earthly ministry. Surely Jesus would want nothing to do with him now. How do you allow a traitor back into the camp? How do you allow someone that turns and denies you, swearing a curse upon himself in an effort to so distance themselves from you that they would never be thought of as one of yours? How do you let a man like that back into the camp? How do you hand him a victory? How do you allow him eternal life? How do you give him access into the kingdom of God? And so Peter broke down and wept. Dear friends, these are the deep and abiding tears of shame and sorrow and remorse and regret. And while I do not wish this kind of failure, while I do not wish this kind of sin in your life, I pray that you know these heartbroken sobs. I pray that you know what it's like to have your Savior look you in the eye in the moment of failure. I pray that you know what it's like to still see the face of Jesus Christ when you've done the thing that you swore you were never going to do. I pray that you felt the conviction of your Savior's eyes looking into your soul and revealing and confronting the sin that is found there. And I pray that it drives you to weep. Before we get to the joy that comes from the reality that he doesn't look away, I pray that you weep. I pray that you felt this. Dear children, we will all fail. That was never up for debate. The question was never whether or not you would let him down. The question was never or not Never, never whether or not you were going to offend the living God. The question was never not even the depths of your sin. Yes, we hate our sin. Yes, we confront the heart from which that evil springs forth, and we, and we abhor it. We turn our back on it. We daily crucify it. And yes, we work diligently to mortify the flesh. But inevitably, the flesh breaks through, and we sin. The issue is, what do we do with the conviction that comes next? Matthew tells us that Peter went out and wept. When Judas finally came to his senses and realized that he had betrayed the only innocent man to ever live, and then he went and tried to return the 30 pieces of silver to the Sanhedrin, we read that he went out and hung himself. Utter despair, completely lost. Peter wouldn't be lost. Peter wouldn't be cast out like this. Jesus had promised him. Jesus had promised him. He said, you will fail. You will fall. You will deny me three times, but when you turn. Again, dear friends, I tell you, Jesus Christ does not lose. He does not lose one of those that are his. And he says, Peter, I have prayed for you. I've interceded for you. I have won for you so that Peter, after you fall, when you turn, you will be used to strengthen your brothers. Dear friends, that promise probably felt like an absolute impossibility in this moment. But Jesus would come to Peter again. 
He would give him three more opportunities to affirm his love for Christ and then he would restore him to his proper position as leader amongst the apostles. At the same time, he tells us that for this man called Judas, it would have been better if he had never been born. It wasn't that one man's sin was unforgivable. It wasn't that God was ranking the sins in these men's life. It was that this critical moment revealed the status of their heart. It revealed the source and the goal and the driver behind their faith. One man had spirit-filled, Christ-exalting, utter self-denying faith in Jesus Christ. The other man had the shallow, self-focused, passing faith of death. These moments just revealed it. These moments weren't what defined these men. These moments were what came from their heart was finally revealed for all to see. These moments were just the undeniable consequences of hearts that stood where they did with relation to Jesus Christ. They walked the same way for years. Their sins looked very, very similar. Even their sorrow took on the same tone. But dear friends, you must know that not all sorrow, not all grief is the same. That's the words that David read for you this morning. That there is a godly grief that produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret, but there's a worldly grief that produces death. The question isn't the depth of your sin. The question isn't whether or not conviction comes. The question isn't even the emotions that come with that conviction. The question is, where does that sorrow drive you and what does it come from? To whom do you turn when that sorrow comes? To whom do you look when that regret strikes you? When King Saul was confronted by the prophet Samuel, because he had, obeyed, he had disobeyed the word of God, God had told him to completely wipe out the Amalekites and he hadn't carried this task out to its completion. And so then when the prophet Samuel came to confront King Saul, King Saul's only concern was for his ability to hold on to the throne and for his reputation with the people. When the prophet Nathan came to King David, he had committed a much worse sin by most earthly standards. He had taken another man's wife and impregnated her, one of his faithful soldiers. And then turning his back, he commanded his men to draw back so that this man could die. He was an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. And yet when he was confronted by this man called Nathan, when he was confronted in his sin, his only concern was the one whom he had sinned against. That's the difference. Not whether or not conviction comes. What do you do when it comes? We find that one man was cast out. The Spirit of God left him. But the other man, King David, it was said of him that he was a man after God's own heart. Again, it wasn't the standard of the sin. It wasn't the depth of what they had done. It wasn't conviction or lack of conviction. It was where did it drive them. It was the condition of their heart. Church, anytime I meet with somebody, anytime a man comes to me and we're talking about their sin, particularly when a man comes to me and they promise, because this is the thing that men very often do. They've been caught in sin and they come to me and they say, I've already repented. I've already repented. I know, I know, I know. It was so bad, I shouldn't have done that. I've already repented. I've turned back to Jesus Christ and I've asked his forgiveness and he's forgiven me. Now I just need everybody else to forgive me. Dear friends, I always direct them to the 51st Psalm. I'm not gonna read it for you this morning. I would ask you to read it today. I would ask you before you go to bed tonight to read the 51st Psalm and ask, do the words of King David echo in my heart? When I've been caught in sin, when I've been confronted and convicted in my sin, when that sorrow hits, does it drive me to cry out like this? Because what you're gonna find there from King David is no excuses. What you're gonna find there from King David is a man that is not concerned with the immediate earthly consequences for his sin. What you're gonna find there is not a man that's concerned with his reputation. You're gonna find a broken and contrite heart. You're gonna find a man that recognizes that he has offended the living God. You're gonna find a man that knows I can do nothing to be made right with this God. I would offer sacrifices, but you don't want them. I would go do some stuff, but you don't want it. You want me here on my knees begging you for forgiveness. 
Dear friends, I ask you, is that what you see in your life, a true and utter dependence and desperation for the undeserved grace and mercy and steadfast love of God? Dear friends, that's the stuff of true saving faith, not how you worship on your best days, how you repent on your worst Don't point to me to all your years of Christian service. Don't point to me to your songs of praise when things were good. Show me what you look like at your deepest and your darkest and your worst moment, and I will tell you if you have true saving faith. Not because I'm the judge, but because Scripture points us there. Dear friend, a heart that has truly been captured by Jesus Christ, a heart that is truly headed for glory, they will see the depth of their sin and they will not despair. They will turn to God in hope and hope and in trust that he will not turn me away. I know that against he and he alone have I sinned, so he's the only one that I go to. And I ask him, what comes next? Dear friend, that's the life of saving faith. And I please see the hope in this. I pray that you see the hope in this. Because again, I tell you, he did not cast Peter away. He continued to make eye contact with him in this moment. That at that moment, at his deepest and his darkest moment, as he denied his Savior, his Savior looked back at him. And I have to imagine that if, that if his facial expression said any to, anything to him, surely there was sorrow. Surely there was pain. Jesus was fully human. He had been betrayed by his closest follower. He was heading off to do a thing that he said he did not want to do apart from the Father's will. Yet in that moment, surely he had to see love. Dear friends, I understand that there's some of you that come into this place this morning. You say, you don't know the sins that I've committed. You don't know the ways that I've denied Christ. You don't know how unworthy I am of his love. Different, you've got to know that's a tactic of the enemy. He comes to you before you sin, and he tries to convince you it's no big deal. Everybody does it. And then on the back side of the sin, he goes, oh, that's the worst. Jesus could never have you back. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Different, I say to you by the name of God, lift up your head. Lift up your head and look at your Savior. Lift up your head and look at him in the eyes. Lift up your head and plead with him. Beg him, turn my heart. I don't want to go here anymore. But dear friends, trust that he will. Trust that he's not done with you yet. Trust that he has promised he will lead you into glory. And that even in this lifetime, as those little bastions of flesh, those little pockets of rebellion pop up, he says, I will give you victory because I am the victor. Dear friends, lift up your head and look at your Savior. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that the victory has been secured. We thank you, Father, that no matter the depths and the depravity and the persistence and the ongoing nature of our sin, Father, that you called us with a full awareness of that. Peter was probably caught off guard by his sin in this moment, but Christ was not. There's not a thing that you've you've called us unaware of there's not an ounce of rebellion or evil or sin or stain that catches you off guard and yet still you've called us so father it's our desire as a people that gather today as a sinful people a, a new creation surely but a people that will continue to struggle with sin until our very last day you call us saints and we are because we have been chosen by you and yet Father, we know that there are those thorns in the flesh, there are those sins, there are those struggles that you will not fully remove us, remove from us because it's in our weakness that your strength is known. So Father, we come together today as a people seeking to worship you in the middle of that weakness. 
coming to praise you in the middle of that pain, coming to, coming to magnify your name, trusting that you have and will do all that you say. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.